This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit SalemPresWS.org. That's SalemPresWS.org. We believe preaching is best when experience is part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Usually we meet Sunday evenings in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. We hope to return to that soon. And as you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll come with us when we can gather in person. Just add um, one more thing before you do the scripture reading, which is that we want to continue to uh, encourage folks to take a picture and post it on Slack or on Instagram um, because we've really found it encouraging every week to see each other's faces gathered. So post a picture of your gathering. Just take a little, if it's, if it's you by yourself or you with family or you with your dog or you with a cup of tea, uh, post that so that we can see each other's faces. Uh, cause that's the best that we can do right now, but it, it is so encouraging. So, uh, thanks. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. Oh, good. So the uh, scripture reading for this evening is from the book of Luke, and we are in chapter 9, and we're going to start with verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist's. But others say, Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old is risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed, when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So this story is uh, the pivot point in the book of Mark, and uh, it's also the pivot point in the book of Luke, which we're looking at. And um, so it's it's that turning point, I think, that the gospel writers saw where um, things shift dramatically. And I thought of 
um, a pivot point on a, on a seesaw where um, when I was little, I would sometimes walk up the side of the seesaw and you get to that pivot point, suddenly go down. And the, the whole gospel just suddenly starts going down at this point. And uh, we move aggressively towards Jerusalem and towards suffering after this point. When Peter says, you are the Christ, it's like as soon as the identity is known, everything changes. And um, he starts to head towards verse 22, which is to suffer uh, many things and to be rejected and to be killed. And I think that um, this is the key to understanding who tre uh, Jesus truly is. This is, um, this is something that he didn't want anyone to know until they really understood uh, what had to happen to him, what the, what the Messiah, the Christ, was really like. And so this, this is uh, critical to understanding who Jesus is. Um, in fact, that's what I want to talk about. Who, who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? And I think to understand uh, who he is, is to understand who we are. And that if you really get to know uh, what he came to do and who he was, then you can know who you are and what you were made to be. So I want to look at those two things. Who is Jesus and who are you? And uh, if you had asked me when I was not a believer in 1990, um, who is Jesus, I would have given you an answer, a textbook answer, uh, something like most historians uh, say that he was a great teacher um, or a social revolutionary or that he was some kind of prophet. Um, and uh, that's what the crowds are doing here. That's what Jesus begins the conversation about to kind of get an objective um, answer, a, an answer that's not personal. He's kind of warming them up here and he's asking them, who do the crowds say that I am in verse 18? And the, the crowds give these different answers, among of which are John the Baptist, Elijah, and a resurrected prophet. And I think part of the point of this is that it doesn't really matter what you uh, think others say he is or what the majority opinion uh, of, of Jesus is. Uh, it's, it's, what, it's what do you say? And that's what he says in verse 20. Uh, after the, pro the apostles answer all these different things, Jesus says, okay, but who do you say that I am? And that's the, that's the key question that he's been building up to. That's what he was praying about at the beginning of this passage is, is uh, he's praying for them to know who he is. And uh, even, even the answer that Peter gives, uh, is, which is kind of a Sunday school answer, uh, you are the Christ in verse 20, even that uh, doesn't really uh, have transformative power. It's, it is the right answer and it's not the right answer. He, yes, he is the Messiah, he is the mighty one, the powerful one who's coming. Um, but, but Peter doesn't understand something very critical about the nature of Jesus. Uh, because when Jesus adds um, in verse 22 that he, that he must suffer many things and be rejected, this is not actually in the Gospel of Luke, but in the Gospel of Mark, uh, you realize that Peter can't handle this. And I'm sure he's uh, the same as all the other disciples. Um, Peter actually in Mark 8, 32, took him aside and began to rebuke him. So he is, Peter is treating Jesus like he's a schoolboy, and Peter is the teacher, and he's rebuking Jesus. And um, he, he, he has, even though he said he's the Christ, he really has, in some ways, no idea of what that means, of who he really is. And I would say that when we, like Peter, um, deeply misunderstand the nature of Jesus, um, it 
it, it doesn't tell us who we are. It, lo- it, he, it loses the power of transformation. You don't really know who he is. Um, because to know who he is, you have to, to both know, yes, he is the Christ. He is this powerful one, the chosen one, the coming one. But also that, as Jesus says here, he has to suffer many things. And actually what Jesus is doing here is um, this creative reading of the Old Testament where he is combining uh, the two great messianic images in the Old Testament, or at least two of the great messianic images. Uh, in, in Daniel 7, we see that in verse 26, uh, the Son of Man coming in glory and the glory of the Father and his holy angels. That's quoting from a very famous passage in Daniel 7. Uh, Daniel seven thirteen, uh, the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven and to him will be given dominion, glory, a kingdom, which shall not pass away, and all people, nations, and languages will serve him. So Jesus is picking up on this figure of the Son of Man, which sounds like he's just a human, but it's actually a divine figure uh, coming on the clouds as part of uh, the judgment. So we, we have, on the one hand, uh, this powerful Son of Man, but on the other hand, Jesus combines that uh, in the same verse with the suffering servant of Isaiah, uh, the sheep who was silent before her shearers, uh, despised and rejected uh, by people, crucified, um, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You can read that in Isaiah 53. So when Jesus says in verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things, he's combining um, these two images, these two great images from uh, the two great prophets of Daniel and Isaiah, and it's very disorienting to Peter and the disciples to have these two things uh, slam together, the suffering and the omnipotence. And Jesus is saying, I am both of those things. As hard as that is for uh, us humans to, to grasp, that's, that's what I am. Um, I have all dominion and glory, and I um, am crucified. And um, if you know about crucifixion, it was, uh, it was the form of death penalty that the Romans invented to be the most horrific nightmare imaginable. And the, the, the criminal would take his own uh, instrument of torture and execution and carry it up a hill behind him um, across a huge rough wooden beam, very heavy. And that's what Jesus is saying, that he, he is like, that's who he is. Um, this cruel and humiliating and excruciating, excruciating actually comes from the word cross. Uh, he's saying that that's the only way that a person can be transformed and saved. You have to know that he is going to be crucified and, and you yourself have to take up your cross. Verse 23, uh, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And we hear cross all the time when we see the crosses on people's necklaces and we forget about what that would have sounded like to Peter and James and John and Andrew. Um, They would have been horrified for Jesus to say to take up his cross. They didn't know at this point at all that he was going to be crucified. And so the only way that we can know who we are, um, the only way that we can be transformed in that knowledge, is if we realize that that he did not come here to bring mostly safety and security and comfort, and he didn't come to to amplify and increase our contentment with life as it is, and he didn't come to uh, baptize our hopes and dreams, Um, he came to call us to die. 
And that's now moving to the second point. That's, that's who he is, the suffering son of man. Uh, and, and he calls us to die. And that's, that's who we are. Um, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, uh, when Jesus calls a man, uh, he calls him to come and die. And then a part of that quote that is not often mentioned is that he, he, Bonhoeffer says he, he calls a man to die to the old man, which is the old self and the false self. And so that's, that's moving to the second point. That's who we are. We are, uh, we are the person that is underneath the false self or the old man, to use Bonhoeffer's term. It's like a snakeskin that, is, that has come off. The, the real me is this uh, glorious image bearer royalty. You know, we are kings and queens uh, made in God's image. And we are dying in order for that to come to life. If you know the stories uh, of Narnia, the way that these Pevensey children, Lucy and Edmund and Peter and Susan, are transformed in Narnia to become these kings and queens who rule from Care Paravel, that's, that's what uh, Jesus is saying. I've come to, to crucify you, but not just because I like to crucify, but because I want this new thing to come out of you. Um, as one Bible says in verse 25, what will a man gain by winning the whole world at the cost of his true self? I think that's a better translation than soul. Um, the true self is what we don't want to lose. Uh, if you gain the whole world and lost your true self, that would be a massive tragedy because you are made uh, infinitely valuable in the image of God. So I think of um, the way Jesus uh, portrays himself here as like one of those... Um, paint scraping tools. We're about to repaint um, a room in our house. And I'm not talking about the, the new kind that are electric, but that old kind that looked like an ice scraper that was really, really heavy. And you would just have to grade it really uh, with a lot of force pressed down with both hands and try to strip off that paint. Um, the suffering son of man, that's what he is, is he, he scrapes away the old self and he does that to get down to that beauty, the original hardwood floor, the, uh, the original gorgeous marbled wood. Um, he's not a self-help guru. He doesn't come to just polish the, the floor to add another coat of paint like, you know, Tony Robbins or a Dr. Phil. That's, that's not at all what he came to do. Eugene Peterson has a translation called The Message, and, and this is how he translates verse 24. He says, self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, is my way to finding yourself, your true self. So again, you see that idea of the true self. And I think that the Bible says something very radical about the human being, which is that we have just covered up this real us with all of these layers of makeup um, and plastic surgeries. It's like Michael Jackson at the end of his career where there was almost none of the original beauty of his face left. Um, that he had kind of almost bleached who he really was out. And the Bible says that, that God is trying to strip that all away to get to the real self. And to do that is going to involve suffering. Uh, and it's going to involve a great paint scraper like Jesus taking that away, the, the suffering son of man. I think we all knew people in high school, maybe you were one of these people who uh, radically changed their persona. Maybe their freshman year, they wanted to be cool, and so they entered the party scene, and they started hanging out with the popular kids. 
and they started to talk differently. I was not one of these kids, but I had friends that did this. And, um, you know, in this day and age, their Instagram posts would be full of these fake expressions and poses, uh, wearing things that are not them, speaking in a way that is not them. And this is what the Bible says we've, we've all done. We've created a false image of ourselves. And Jesus comes to kill that and to take away the old self. Ephesians 4.22, Paul says to the Ephesians, which is really similar to what Jesus says, uh, in Ephesians 4.22, Paul says, put off your old self. That's actually, uh, the word he uses in Greek is more like take off your old clothes. Take off your old clothes of the old self, which are corrupted by deceitful desires, these things that are not us. And what Paul is saying there, and he says the same thing in Colossians, by the way, very similar about the old self. And he's saying, take off all these masks that you've been wearing, take down all those posts uh, that are not you, that cover your true identity and your true beauty, and don't be afraid of what God has made you to be. Paul adds in Colossians 3.10, uh, put on the new self. And again, that's a clothing metaphor. Take off the old, uh, disgusting, dirty clothes and put on this new self. And then this, listen to how Paul um, describes the new self. A new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. Um, it's renewed after the image of the Creator. So, again, Jesus is not calling his disciples here to die because he's, he's a, a sadist or a masochist or he likes pain. He's calling them to die uh, to unearth this thing in us that's beautiful, this thing in Peter that is gorgeous. And with each one of us, there's this unique resonance uh, between you and the glory of God. And that resonance between you and God is... Um, is the image of God in you. And that's who you are. That's who you really, really are deep down beneath. Um, which, you know, it's, it's, we don't really know exactly who we are. We don't know what we will be. But I think the best glimpse of it is back when you were a child. I mean, even then you were sinful and selfish and were not the true self. But when you were a child and the fears about um, sickness and money and children and marriage and career and whatever you're afraid of, when those were not there and you were unencumbered and free, that's some part of the true self that Paul and Jesus are talking about. Um, a self that trusted people maybe more fully and that laughed more easily. Uh, a self that believed people liked you instinctively, easily, quickly. Um, that felt unselfconsciously beautiful without being point of pride at all, where you didn't mind seeing yourself in a mirror um, or hearing a recording of your voice, where you were just uh, very aware of your glory. And that is there to some extent in childhood. And then there in, there's this false self that's like kind of curled up in a ball and, uh, and tense and picking your nails or twirling your hair, uh, anxious. And uh, this is what... Um, that Jesus wants to strip away. And I want to spend the rest of the time talking about in particular anxiety because I think uh, that is, is more than a, a little bit of a character flaw or personality trait. Um, it's, it's an implosion of the real self, uh, of who we're all made to be. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a thick covering of that uh, easy trust in, in our creator. And of course, right now, uh, obviously, it's a big problem. 
Um, it's, it's distorting people greatly, uh, both individually and as a nation, as a city or a, a neighborhood or even a family. One of the uh, major online anxiety treatment websites says that their user volume is up 65%. That was last week, so it's probably way more than that. And um, you just see examples of it with the hoarding, the hoarding of masks and toilet paper and hand sanitizer. And you might have seen the video of the woman um, at, the, at the Walmart, and uh, she, um, there's an older woman who takes the last roll of toilet paper down, and another woman with a, with a cart filled with toilet paper grabs that from her, and then when the older woman tries to get it back, she slaps her, and then all the people around her push her out of the way and get it back and give it to the older woman, but to, just that, that image of that woman, I mean, how does a person get to there? That is not the image of God. And that was all driven by anxiety. And uh, it's an extreme example, but what I'm saying is that I think in all of us, there's something that's being, um, that's coming out right now that is perverting our original glory. And it comes out in a lot of different ways. And sometimes they seem almost productive. But um, I think it always, uh, at some level, makes us irritable and restless and uh, distracted and unable to consume uh, the good um, podcasts, reading the things that Austin was talking about earlier, um, it creates a lot of tension in people's homes. Um, I particularly uh, move towards cleaning, which is a strange and, again, productive form of it, but um, it becomes kind of obsessive and almost violent. Um, the way I'll sweep out my car or just uh, keep scrubbing something, uh, you know, way too long. Uh, or, or moving around my house and rearranging things all the time, which I consider cleaning, but um, in Margie's mind, in my wife's mind, it's more just like irritating because I keep moving things to places people, where the rest of the family doesn't know where they are. And um, I think we're all doing things that uh, are ways of anxiety coming out. I, I heard a podcast where someone said, uh, how, how would you sum up your coronavirus experience in five words or less. And one person wrote, uh, what should I bake next? And I think there's a lot of um, opening of the fridge and baking. There's a lot of indulgence. It's very hard not to. We're, we're so closed in. There's a lot of lapsing into old patterns of lust or gluttony or alcohol or shopping. And I think uh, a lot of this comes from just a real fear of what is going to happen in the future and how long is this going to go on? We just don't know. And the guy who was the head of that online website that I was talking about, the anxiety website, um, he says that anxiety is based on two words, uh, what if, followed by the worst case scenario your, your brain can even think of. And a lot of our anxiety, I know for me, it's when I start going down that rabbit trail of, of what's going to happen. Um, catastrophizing, which uh, I think to myself, you know, we don't know how long this is going to go on. This could go on for months. Um, what if the economy totally collapses and what if the, um, the church dies? What if all of our savings are totally gone? And psychologists actually say that it's good for you um, to write these things down, um, these worst case scenarios, um, that you, if you write them down, that actually helps um, to somehow take away their power and to, to actually read the script of what you wrote down. So if you write down, you know, what if I have no toilet paper? What if my retirement disappears? What if I lose my job? What if my loved one 
gets the coronavirus, what if I get it, what if I die alone? Um, the more you read the script, the more you doubt it. But even if those things did happen, and Jesus doesn't promise us they won't, uh, but even if those things happened exactly that way, uh, the hope that we have as believers is that after that um, will come verse 26, where the Son of Man will come in glory, uh, with the glory of his Father and his holy angels, and that all the worst-case scenarios will end in the same way. Um, this, this hope that we have as Christians is completely unique in the world and gives us a power uh, not that the anxiety will all be gone, but we have a, something underneath the anxiety to lift us up. And we know that everything is, is in some ways the shape of a parabola, where although things are going to go down perhaps and uh, things will get very sad, eventually that's going to all come untrue and be redeemed. And, and we know that all suffering, as Jesus says, will one day lead to resurrection and to glory. Verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected but on the third day be raised. And so because we have this uh, huge fear uh, driven by the fear of death, the, the resurrection and the second coming, we know are the end of all of our worst case scenarios. And we know that all this fear that we have and this anxiety is not who we are. And that, that is what Jesus is scraping away. And he is saying to us, that is what I want to free you from forever. Um, that false self. And I feel like in this passage, he's holding out his hand to us and uh, offering um, to come and die with me and to hold my hand and let's go down together and let's rise together. And in this meal that we usually celebrate that we don't get to celebrate tonight, uh, it is all a symbol of this great moment of, uh, of parabola, this parabolic exaltation where Although um, Jesus serves them the wine and the bread, and he says, this is my body and this is my blood, um, it's a deep um, resonance with suffering and rejection and being killed. But then out of that, um, we know that new life comes. That in, in remembering those things, that's where life, the life of Christ comes into us every week. And we mourn that and grieve that. And as the session has been talking about, not serving the Lord's Supper, we, we all agree that um, we don't do it lightly at all. It's a very serious thing for us to, to not be serving that right now, to not be uh, celebrating that right now. We do want to talk about that afterwards, but I do want to say that we, we don't think that, um, that the bread and the wine are magical. And so if we left a little piece of bread and wine at your door right now and you partook, that's not, um, there's nothing in that that is it is magical or inherently powerful. And even though we know it's not symbolic, we don't believe it's a symbol, but we, um, we do believe that, that the people have to, to, have to be as, having a supper together. And that if, if um, we were just to leave that little thing at your door and you just partook, it's not, a, it's not a family meal. So we'll talk about that more when you, when you text in later. Um, but I want to say that um, that's one of the reasons we've talked about um, not doing it right now. It's just that we, we're not gathered. We, part of the drama is the supper, is the meal, is eating together. And we're, we're longing to be back around that table as a family uh, eating together. But in the meantime, we, we can sing um, and, and, we can, and we can receive the word.